Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Wednesday, the 10th of February. Where in the word are you today? So last evening I had the uh, the opportunity to meet, uh, although virtually via Zoom, with, uh, with our community group from church. And we're in a new community group this year. And almost everybody in uh, our community group um, are young parents. And when I say young parents, they are young and their babies are young. And so it is a joy and delight uh, to meet with them and to hear them pray for their children and to hear them pray uh, that God would that use them to shepherd the hearts of these babies and these uh, and these very young children. And I was uh, praying this morning for Mia. Mia turns 18 today. She happens to be my niece and the passage of scripture that uh, I prayed over her when she was not yet born and then uh, newly born and as a little child was Psalm 139. And so I prayed over her again today and I lift it up to you um, uh, for your consideration in terms of God's knowledge of you and your seeking of him. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me, you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works." My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when I was yet, was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they were more than the sand. I awake. And I am still with you. Let me encourage you today to be praying for those who are young around us, for those who are growing up. Pray that they would grow up in every way into Christ, who indeed is the head. So happy birthday, Mia Graciela Ruth. May you know the one who created you. May you know the one who already knows all the days of your life. And may you seek him. May you seek him. 
Well, raising up the next generation is the topic of conversation with my next guest. He is the head football coach at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. His name is Matt Moore. I'm going to call this the uh, Coach's Corner with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, joining me now, Coach Matt Moore, coach of the Eagles. Hey, welcome, man. Thank you. It is great to be here. Exciting. But football season is officially over. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Super Bowl happens and and it's done. It's it's uh it's it's the NFL part's done. We're doing a little something different this spring, but yeah, the traditional segment is over. All right, but students are on campus um at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Uh talk a little bit about this Weird past year, maybe some observations that uh, you can make as a coach, um, experiences that students had that we might not, you know, be aware of as people who, um, you know, have been living our own lives and doing our thing where we are. What's been going on where you are? Yeah, you know, uh, I I think for everybody, it's been tough because you become virtual with everything right now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, our our education. Virtual athletics is challenging. (laughs) It's a whole different deal. In fact, (laughs) I met with my team last night and you sit on a Zoom. You know, you're used to being in a room with 85 guys and instead I'm sitting in my my son's bedroom, you know, on a laptop. So, uh, way different deal. Um, you know, and I think the challenge for them, you know, in that, in this age demographic and a lot of younger kids too, is the, the beauty of sports is the relationships and, and the social aspect and, and how they can kind of sharpen one another. You know, we learn in Proverbs about, uh, men sharpening one another. And, um, so that I think has been the toughest part for these guys, um, and, and all these students, but, uh, we've been back on campus and our athletics have been rolling. And so one of the beautiful things you see is when they're able to practice and, and to do it safely, how, how, uh, how they just brighten up, you know, you see them smile when they're out on their competitive floor or being able to engage with one another and, and kind of be young again a little bit instead of sitting, sitting on a computer or something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So um, I want to talk about coaches and coaching. I grew up playing uh, softball. I actually probably remember uh, some of my coaches along the way more more clearly than I remember some of my classroom teachers. Um, talk with us about the influence of coaching, maybe in your own life, and then, you know, the experience you're having uh, coaching others. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've told people this a lot, you know, second to my dad, who who had a major influence in my life and, and was the my main mentor, you know, guiding in my faith and, and all of that. Um, my, my college football coach impacted me, you know, greatly. You know, it's it's a time in my it was a time in my life when, um, you know, you're developing and trying to decide kind of which paths you're going to go. And, and he was there as a mentor and helped guided me that way. And um Again, I think that's that's what we see. That's that's what we try to do the most of. And you know, everybody knows you hit that time where you don't really want to hear from your parents. You know, you don't, you don't really have a, that great of a relationship, or it's just a different relationship with them. But you will listen to your coach. You know, whoever that might be, and and you you long for kind of conversation with them, and you long for affirmation with them, and so. We love the opportunities that we have right now to be able to kind of speak into kids and, and to guide them and to, you know, have an office that they can come in and sit down and ask questions and you can give them honest answers. So so I'm talking with Coach Matt Moore, head football coach at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Um, Matt, a lot of us have been 
uh, wondering sort of like, you know, what, what have the conversations been among coaches and players related to um, the changes that we're seeing nationwide uh, in men's and women's athletics and the blurring maybe of those lines. And I'm not asking you to make any sort of, uh, you know, of political assessment here. Just just sort of wondering, you know, from your view as a coach, um, there are a lot of really strong women's athletics programs at the University of Northwestern, um, St. Paul. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine biological males playing on those teams um, and how the opportunities for those women would then be, uh, I mean, obviously greatly diminished. So just, you know, is this something that people are talking about other than those of us who are sort of headline news driven? Yeah, I think there are, especially I I think it comes more at the high school level because I think Mm. that's where a lot of the bigger impact is. Um, You know, I think you see a lot more people that uh, are afraid that opportunities are being taken away. And, and frankly, I think that's where there's more opportunities being taken away. Um, and I think that's the, the threat then becomes um, what impact does that have on someone's chance to go to college in a competitive way? So mm. um, there's definitely an impact there. Um, and there's definitely conversations taking place there. So uh, I think a lot of it then it, there's a lot of not fear, but then, then you start to wonder, okay, if if this is going to occur at the high school level, is this going to trickle into the NCAA, and and how big of an impact is it going to make? You know, um, as as we do that, and that's it's more fear driven uh, speak, if that makes sense. You know, where it's, sure. where, where is this going to go, and and where is the line going to blur to? You know, if it, if it keeps blurring on on what they're allowed to do, so um, yeah, it, it's a kind of a scary deal. Yeah, well, we uh, we've been paying attention to it. Um, as well. I'm talking with Coach Matt Moore. He and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask him to maybe identify um, some Christians in athletics who've been influential in his life. I'll, uh, I'll list off some high-profile guys like Tony Junji or Benjamin Watson. Tim Tebow maybe comes to mind, Clemson's coach Dabo Sweeney. Who comes to your mind when you think about uh, Christians who are using athletic platforms to advance the kingdom? That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> I have no idea what that song is, but it's probably athletics related. (laughs) Yes. That's fantastic. (laughs) All right. I'm talking with Coach Matt Moore, head football coach from the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Um, Paul Perot adding in music that's unfamiliar to me, but I'm sure a blessing to many. Um, Let's talk about, uh, Matt, maybe some of the high-profile Christians out there in athletics who maybe come to mind for you, serve as an inspiration or encouragement to you. Yeah, you know, uh, Tony Junji, you mentioned his name shortly. He certainly has, a, you know, a place in my in my heart, I guess, so to speak, you know, where some, somebody I've looked up to, somebody who is an outspoken Christian um, and is successful and and uh, and people and, you know, really wise in, in what he says and how he's kind of carried himself. So he's been kind of um, really fun to see. The other one, Dabo Sweeney. You know, right right now, I love the things I hear um, that he does, and that how he leads his program, and and also how he's willing to kind of you know plant a sword in the ground and say this is this is who I am, and if and if you're not okay with that, that's fine. But then I'm going to go do this somewhere else. Um, and and he's been very kind of devout in what he does um, from a faith aspect. Even you know he's he's baptized some players. He's done a, quite a bit there where. You know, it's, a, it's really encouraging to see someone who's winning at the national level, really at the highest collegiate level that he can do, and he's doing it with an outspoken belief in, in Christ and, and, and being very de- devout in that. Coaches, um, 
you know, they play a really significant role in our lives. And you're obviously playing a significant role in the lives of the athletes um, with whom you have contact day in and day out. Talk with us a little bit about your athletic department's motto, Compete with Purpose, and the three core values. Yeah, you know, we the the compete with purpose deal. It, it's a it's a big statement when you when you kind of say it, and it's and it's more than what you think of. And uh, the three core values: the first one being place Christ first. And so we we want everything that we do in athletics, and uh, and and the lives that we're touching, we want to place Christ first. Whether that you know, and you know, that's that's a that's a huge statement, even just in that. But um, if if everything we do comes off of that we're going to be in pretty good shape. I think, you know, how, how we compete and how we carry ourselves in the classroom and, and how we go out and recruit and how we engage with people that that's major. Um, the second part of that is invest in relationships. And that's, that's how I think we, how we want to operate from day to day after we're placing Christ first is how do we treat one another? Um, how do we treat our players? How do we treat other coaches, other teams? How do we treat other people at the, at the university level um, you know, what are we going to do? And then we're going to pursue our best. You know, we're not, we're not showing up just to, to get a participation trophy. We, we want to win. And I think, uh, you know, we have a lot of programs that are at our university that are really successful out on the, out on the hard court or, you know, out on the field. Um, and, and they do it in a way where they honor God. They're, you know, they're placing Christ first. They have a great testimony and they're winning, you know, and so I always, I always say if Jesus played free safety, he'd knock you down. So, but then he'd help you up afterwards, and it, it would be a clean hit. And that's that's what we want to be. We want to compete at a high level, um, and we want to do it in a way that honors Christ. So, um, I mean, as you, uh, I bet nobody, I bet very many people who are listening right now have never thought about uh, Jesus um, playing on a football <laughs> team, and if he did, what position he might play, and whether or not uh, he would take a hit, or yeah. whether or not he would give one. Like, so I guarantee you that has. Uh, Ooh, that yeah. people's little eyebrows just went up. There and they're you like, go. Oh, I don't huh. think he'd be a quarterback, Carmen. No, I clearly would like. Uh, well, I guess I hope he would be the center because I hope that for all of us, he is the center. Um, and uh, uh, you know, and I and I guess I hope that um, uh, we'd be on his team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those would be the two things. I just want to be on his team, and I want him to be the center. Yeah, how's I'm, that sound? I'm okay with that. I'm with you on that one. I could preach that. I mean, you know, if, if pressed. Yeah. Um, so um, when you think about the, uh, the conversations that you've had with student athletes over the years, those two words, I'm wondering if those two words are ever in, uh, in conflict or competition, student and athlete. Um, and I'm also wondering if there's, you know, don't tell us who it was, but if there's a conversation that stands out maybe with one student athlete over the years and you, you kind of say to yourself, you know what, I, I could see the evidence that that conversation was sticky for that one person. Uh, the student athlete part, I think, I think most people, um, I, I think a lot of the beauty of Division Three athletics, which we're, you know, we're a non-scholarship athletic school. The beauty of that is we really do place the student part first and, and we put an emphasis on, you know, the fact you're not going to go make a living, you know, doing what, what you're doing on the court. And so we really need to, make sure that you're successful in the classroom, you know, and the other part that I work with guys all the time on is if you're not successful in the classroom, you don't have a shot to do the part on the court. And so you really need to be successful as a student um, in in order, if you want to succeed, you know, and, and I think a lot of times it's easy for an athlete to, to have his schedule and his training regimen or his or her schedule or training regimen and, and what they do. And, they they don't always translate that into the classroom, but mm-hmm. the, as soon as you can kind of teach them, hey, look, at, you have this discipline in your life 
that you do daily, you know, and you have a schedule for the week and you do all this. If you take that same discipline and apply that to your academics or apply that to your faith walk or apply that to your, you know, relationships and those things, look at how successful you can be, you know. And so that's always the major encouragement. You know, I, I think there's in regards to conversations, you know, about that that I've had with kids, I, I think sometimes that's that's the bigger conversation is is getting them to understand listen you you need to be successful here this this is the goal is to be successful as a student you need to be successful and as a husband you need to be successful as a father these are the important things that matter um you know for a long time uh and and the the football part or the you know the athletic part man that's going to fade and and that can fade as easy as you know it's winter time here you slip on the ice and you're not playing anymore have you have you put that effort into the classroom have you put that effort into your relationships and those things um to be successful passages of scripture um that maybe are pinned to your heart and mind well you know as the proverb i, I spoke of a little bit earlier is iron sharpens iron you know so one man sharpens another and and that's that's really at the heart of what we want to try to be doing um all the time you know the other one is you know proved workmen are not ashamed you know we we want to work diligently we want to work in a way that honors god and and we want to work in a way that um it is diligent and that that we we can be you know at, at a certain point we stand in front of him and he says well done you know um with what we've done with with kids and with each other so matt you um uh you said early on in our conversation that uh you were meeting with your team over zoom and then you shared that you were sitting in your son's bedroom so you're a dad um tell us about that and how how being a dad has maybe changed the way you coach Oh man, Carmen, that if if some of the players that I coached 15 years ago heard you ask that, they would laugh because I th- I think <laughs> it it has solved. So your son is not 15. My son because is not you're 15. like barely not 15. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 I'm old. Uh but my son is I have a 9-year-old son and a 7-year-old daughter and I would say um I I am uh I I'm not a scary guy, but you know, I'm I'm an intense I was I'm an intense coach. And I think uh, as I had, when I had my first kid, man, I softened, I don't know how many fold, you know, when you, when you realize, um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, to, I really have a different value or not value, a different viewpoint of, of the love God has for us, you know, at, when I had my son, because boy, it's, it's a whole different love, you know, when, when you have those kids and um, the intensity of that, why well, I, I think I treat kids, uh, my kids, my players, uh, in a different way and, and have a different kind of grace for them now that I have a son because I want I want my son to have coaches that love him in a way and you know I tell my players all the time sometimes sometimes love comes in the shape of a hug and sometimes love comes in the shape of a kick you know mm-hmm. but the, those are both needed but now that I have kids um, and I see them being coached and mentored by people I think about who I want them to be impacted on and you know, by and and how I want them to be impacted. And so it, it really has me um, think about how I want to impact my players. So I think it's softened me quite a bit. So uh, I had a coach in high school, Coach Fife, and uh, and he, you know, obviously, you know, men coaching women in, in high school athletics, there's all kinds of things there, like, right, to talk about. And um, and so he was, he was very careful um, about the boundaries of those relationships, but he was also, you know, wanted to assure us that he loved us and that, um, you know, we were his girls. And 
Uh, and, and he would then uh, be prone to say, my love is often expressed to you in the laps I assign you to run. Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Love, lap. yeah. love assigned in laps. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And you could think about how much he loved you every time you passed by uh, as you made it a lap. <laughs> All right. So um, I look forward to Coach's Corner. Matt Moore, thank you so much for joining us today and our, you know, initial conversation about such things. Blessings on you, your family. Um, your student athletes, um, athletics in general, you know, all the good things. We appreciate it. Thanks. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, it's time to catch up today on what in the world is going on around the world. So Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News is going to join us next. How do you handle behavioral issues with your teen when he splits his time between two homes, especially when the ex-wife or ex-husband hold completely different standards? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. How are we supposed to be good parents when it's only a part-time job? Well, for starters, be consistent with what you believe. If you're divorced and your teen moves between two households, understand that you can't control your ex. So stick with the rules, boundaries, and consequences that you believe to be right for your home. Consistency will help you be the best mom or dad for your kid, whether you're full-time or part-time. And someday, your son or daughter will thank you for sticking to it and providing the stability they desperately need. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Joining me now, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Ruth, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I, I am well. I am well. I trust you are. You are too. Trying to stay warm, but yeah, we're we're well. <laughs> yeah, cold. I, we could yeah, you could we could spend a whole segment on cold, but let's not. Let's uh let's talk about what's going on. Um, bring us up to date on Lebanon. I mean, I there's so many uh, threads we could pull here, but I'm just going to let you bring people up to speed. You know, I when I when I'm talk to our partners in Lebanon, um, I just express share their their sentiments and express sorrow over what's happening in Lebanon. And when I was talking to somebody uh, for one of the stories that we covered uh, this week, I, I just sort of made an observation that um, it would be really nice to have a great story coming out of Lebanon, you know, that they've made paths forward. Um, but every time we, we talk about it, it's because something else has gone wrong. Some Another plate has fallen off of the, the twirling sticks. And mm-hmm. I said... Um, Lebanon is kind of becoming the Haiti of the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, you know, with so many challenges and, and a government that isn't that just really isn't functioning right now. Um, and and my our partner agreed. He said that's actually a very good observation and it's accurate um, because everything that's happening right now is just so rooted in uh, in such uh, corruption uh, that goes back so many generations that to fix it feels like an insurmountable task. And so that's one thing that they're asking us to do as the body of Christ as we talk about their situation is to to pray that God does the impossible. Um, in fact, the, the upside of the story is that um, God is exposing some of the, the lower, the upper levels of corruption in a way that wouldn't have been done before. 
it has been a difficult circumstance where you have uh, a near bankruptcy, where you have uh, a global pandemic, and you have a massive explosion. Um, but this is something that, that the believers are saying, we ask God to shake Lebanon, and that's what he's doing. Um, so what we're looking at here is a government that's not functioning, and uh, there are a lot of neighboring countries uh, in and around the the, uh, the country of Lebanon that are saying, we will help you, but first you have to get a functioning government. Uh, the, the government, if you recall, uh, resigned, I believe, last spring um, because of the deeply divided uh, issues and the protests that resulted um, going into and out of um, the elections. And then you had the economic situation, uh, and and then you had the the explosion uh, that really leveled most of the port area, and because of that, there was some leverage to get the government to respond. But right now, that the, the government that has resigned is really just the caretaker government, so nothing has changed. And so there's being there's pressure being put on by neighboring countries like Qatar, who will say, "We will come in and assist you, but first you have to form." this government. So you have to do something more than what you're doing now. Um, that what we're seeing here is days and days and days of protests once again. Um, it's food protests uh, at a point where the Lebanese currency has fallen 80 percent. The prices of uh, fuel and flour have increased exponentially. So now you have a, a culture that isn't really able to afford meat and cheese, um, but they're a bread culture, and now you have flour almost putting food out of people's grasp in terms of being able to afford it. So poverty is becoming a thing in a country where you ha used to have, uh, you know, working class families, and um, this is becoming a serious problem for so many people uh, just trying to figure out how to live, how to choose between getting sick and going out to the markets in in the midst of a pandemic or starving to death. And uh, the lockdown that was uh, the total lockdown that was supposed to end at the end of January was extended a couple of weeks. So that was supposed to end on Monday. And because the numbers aren't really changing that much, they're not going to extend a full lockdown. But the, the restrictions that they have in place to keep people from moving around are pretty significant. And it's causing a lot of other issues uh, aside from just the normal things that you would expect in, in the disruption of people's day-to-day -day lives. So partners like Heart for Lebanon and Triumphant Mercy Lebanon are uh, out and about. They're considered kind of essential workers uh, getting out during the, the time of the lockdown to try to get food to people who wouldn't otherwise have food. And when we're saying that there's no safety net in Lebanon, uh, you know, in the United States, we have something. We have uh, food pantries. We have a lot of different uh, options for people who might be struggling a little bit with food. We have, you know, the bridge cards or um, the assistance, the food assistance kind of programs that are in place. And in Lebanon, those don't exist. So if you're going to get someone who is, ha you know, doing the, the food distributions, it's usually going to be a faith-based ministry in Lebanon that's responding to those needs because they were already in place due to the Syrian refugee crisis. Yeah, I just was making that list. I mean, this was a nation that was um, already showing really extraordinary hospitality to Syrian refugees, uh, and then the massive explosion that leveled the port uh, in the midst of a failing economy, um, and the, and then, you know, add add the raging pandemic and these lockdowns, um, 
and government corruption as a part of many of these layers. Um, I, I got to tell you, Ruth, you know, like when we when we lay it out like that, it's hard to have an expectation um, of of anything that's very good, very fast. I think that, you know, if, if we were if we were going to look at this and we were going to be really sober in our judgment, it's hard to not see a civil war coming in Lebanon. It is. And, and that is always going to be a concern because at the generation that would be maybe in their 40s and 50s, remember very clearly how long the last civil war lasted. And it's still within their generation. And they're doing everything they can to avoid that because that lasted a long time. It lasted through all of their growing up years, you know, and they don't want that for their children. And yet that's where we're, we're seeing the tension between um, the different sects that exist there. Uh, so you are actually going to see uh, the those issues coming up. And the politics are so convoluted in Lebanon um, that it, it, they're just mind-boggling. Um, but one thing we want to say here um, when we talk to our partners about this and we talk about how hard it is right now in Lebanon, um, they, they're tired, but they are still encouraged because they remember the things that they were asking God to do back in the first wave of the the protests. If you recall, when we talked about that a couple of years ago, um, and we were seeing the protests coming up at the, in the like in the fall of 2019, um, the believers were out there holding prayer vigils. They had a prayer tent very publicly in the main square. And what they were asking God to do was shake the nation so mm. that they could rebuild the nation. And maybe this is what it is. And that's that's what they're going back to. They're saying, we remember what we prayed. And this is hard. It is so hard. But maybe this is God's answer. Oh, amen. All right, let's uh, let's pivot to um, to Syria from Lebanon to Syria. That's not a very far pivot, but let's uh, let's pivot there. Bring people up to date on what's happening there. Well, as you might imagine, uh, the civil war in Syria has not improved very much. So it's not a safe place for refugees to go back to right now. And a lot of the refugees that fled the, the conflict in Syria fled to Lebanon. That's not a really a great place right now. It was better when they left. But right now, it's really kind of choosing between a rock and a hard place. Um, so there are frustrations over the stalled peace process. There are concerns that if they go back, the young men will be conscripted into serving in the military. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty right now for the refugees. And uh, our partner program for the Theological Extension, uh, Education by Extension, is kind of having to, um, I, I'm going to say pivot. I know it's it's overused, but they're, they're adjusting how they do ministry uh, to meet some of the needs of these displaced people. So the, the program for Theological edu- Education by Extension, we're going to call it PTEE, at one point centered only on theological training to provide, uh, to really train the church leaders of the future. And right now, because of what they've been doing to try to orchestrate training for the Syrian church leaders, they're seeing another need that's coming up that has to be addressed in order for people to be able to focus enough on their theological education. And that really is rebuilding their lives. Uh, So PTEE isn't a humanitarian aid organization, but they're finding ways to divert some of the resources to help like a, a few hundred families uh, as they try to resettle and try to rebuild their lives, uh, you know, rebuild their homes, uh, support them with 
food and and other things that are necessary just to try to get started again because people can't resettle in a country where they have nothing. There is no mm-hmm. infrastructure right now. And so PTEE is trying to really start something to be able to allow these Syrian refugees to plant some seeds again, uh, go home and and rebuild. And that's just a, a neat story about how ministries are are looking at situations and trying to figure out how to best serve the body of Christ within their abilities. And they're just saying, we don't know if we can do this, but we're going to do it in, in faith and ask God to provide. And, and this is what he does. All right, let's take a very brief break. And then, Ruth, when we come back, uh, let's let's begin to survey the situation in Myanmar. Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News, you can uh, you can read everything that we are talking about today. You can find it at, well, I still go to mnnonline.org, but I think there's an easier uh, thing I'm supposed to be telling people. What is it, Ruth? Well, I think Mission my Network notes would... Re- dot- <laughs> well, missionnetworknews.org. That's, oh, see, that's, so, so, so that's a little more simple because that's what it's easier for people to remember. Missionnetworknews.org. If you see yep. the URL, then change magically to mnnonline.org. That's that's uh, that's that's the way the internets work. Okay, um, Ruth. Yeah, talk with us. Um, so we we had talked about the coup, the military coup in Myanmar, um, but I'll admit to you, we have not circled back around very frequently to this story. Tell us how Christians are navigating ministry in Myanmar um, after the coup. Well, it's been pretty tough. Um, the the situation has finally erupted uh, in Myanmar, and now you've got protesters, uh, the just grassroots level people coming out into the streets and banging pots and pans together to say, we're going to make some noise because we don't want you to do this. Respect our votes. Um, they they really just want the election results to stand. And a lot of actually a lot of countries are saying uh, that they are encouraging the military junta to quit what they're doing and just return the power back to um, the government that was elected. So it it puts people in a very precarious situation to speak out one way or the other um, with regard to the protests or uh, to to supporting the government or any of that kind of stuff, because right now everything is is charged politically. Um, we spoke to a couple of our partners who have uh, boots on the ground in the area, and that's Asian Access and World Concern. And they're both saying this is a point where they, they kind of have to re- withdraw from the politics of it, but also realize uh, that this this situation is very unsettling for a lot of people. Um, as you might imagine, uh, with the kinds of things that we've been seeing in the news, this is just recently something that we experienced in our own country right before the inauguration. And you, you remember how that felt to be so unsettled and wondering what's going to happen next and what will the next day bring. Um, this is even more so with the, the folks in Myanmar because democracy is a relatively new kind of thing. In fact, uh, the phrase that's being tossed around is that it was a democracy experiment. So this is something where folks were given a lot of hope with the election, and then it felt like it was just kind of snatched out from underneath them. So when we're talking to believers who are working in in the area, there's there's a lot of concerns that military will mistreat ethnic and religious minorities, um, because that's what we've seen with the Rohingya. 
Um, the Christians have also kind of felt the the heavy end of the nightstick in that sense as well. Uh, but at the same time, it's also opening up a lot of needs. There's still a lot of um, uh, practical, physical needs that need to be addressed uh, because of what's going on in, in the chaos here. And, and for other ministries, just having a consistent message on um, – on really how to respond in the name of Christ, uh, what the gospel does to provide a peace that does that passes understanding is something that is a very attractive message right now. And it seems like it's kind of simplistic to say, you know, why you've got the government here, preach the gospel and, and people, you know, say, okay, I can accept the, the peace that passes understanding. But that's kind of what we're seeing happen because crisis kind of reveals the cracks in people's lives and and they search for something that will either answer those cracks, fill them in, or help them understand what's happening to cope with the situation, to grasp what's happening in the situation and to have a different response other than fear. So our partners like Asian Access and World Concern, as they try to respond to specific physical needs or respond to the needs of the church leaders in Myanmar, they are asking us to pray. It is a first line to, uh, response for them because they need wisdom in how to do what they're doing so that they don't um, look like they're taking a political side. So mm -hmm. often in these kinds of situations, uh, when someone doesn't support or does support uh, the sitting government, it puts a, uh, a target on their back. And, and we're concerned because this is the possibility because it's been the history. And so they're just asking us to pray for church leaders, for ministry leaders, as they continue to do the work that they do in the name of Christ in Myanmar with things so unsettled that they, they, they walk wisely. All right. And then let's take the last couple of minutes that we have to turn our news, uh, turn our attention to the news from North Korea. Well, this is pretty exciting. You know, we've talked about Eric Foley and Voice of the Martyrs Korea and all of the work that he's been doing with getting scripture portions over the border into North Korea. Right now he's in trouble because he's done it by a uh, weather balloon and um, there's some there's some pushback from um, North Korea. And so he's he's facing some trouble in South Korea for that. But we never talk about how many people actually get scripture or how many portions of scripture or Bibles actually get across the border. So we wanted to give you an update on that. In 2020, um, Voice of the Martyrs Korea sent in 23,000 Bibles into North Korea. That's just kind of amazing because this is a country where uh, people are told if you touch this stuff, it's poisoned and you're going to die. Or if they find out you're a Christian, you're just shot on the spot. And they work to eradicate full lines of family where you have active Christians there. So 23,000 Bibles crossed the border in 2020. And then, you know, even though there are some, some pressure and there's some pushback and there are charges actually pending, criminal charges pending against Voice of the Martyr Korea, specifically Eric Foley, they still laid plans out for this year, and they're looking to increase 23,000 Bibles by 30%. So they're doing that on faith, and they're doing that trying to walk carefully because now there's there's legal stuff there, and, and you really have to ask the question, at what point, you know, are we are – we, following our, our mandate from God, and at what point do we just need to find another way to answer this so we're not constantly breaking the law? Um, 
and 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 that's a tricky that's a tricky place. But Eric Foley says um, God isn't tied to a particular distribution method, so He's going to reveal a lot of things. They've seen a lot of response to the uh, the radio broadcasts that they have as well, and um, there's just some excitement about what they're really trying to lay the groundwork for in 2021, in spite of everything that's happened in the last couple of years. So continue to pray for Eric Foley and his team because they are facing a lot of pressure right now his house is being watched by police so mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot of things that he can't do um just because he's trying to walk very carefully here but he's also trying to walk wisely and still make sure that the folks in North Korea have access to the word of god so just be praying wisdom for him and pray for um the the resources that he will need creative resources that he'll need to make sure that folks in North Korea know that there's a god in heaven who loves them yeah, and I just am going to just be praying that, you know, I mean, God's going to make good on his promise that uh, his word never goes forth void, but always accomplishes that for which he sends it. And all of those Bibles are going to find their ways into the lives and hearts and minds of North Koreans who then in turn um, will, you know, potentially not only change uh, the life immediately around them, but the life of that nation writ large. So um, all kinds of prayers on that front. Ruth Kramer, as always, thank you for joining us today. You guys can find the headlines we discussed and so much more at Mission Network News. We'll be right back. All right, one more international headline uh, for the person who asked me via email this morning, what about India? Um, here's what I know. India is cracking down on dissent uh, amidst unrest over the government's farm laws. Um, and as a result of that, big tech companies like Twitter are finding themselves in a really difficult position. So in the last 10 days, the Indian government uh, has asked Twitter Twitter to suspend hundreds of accounts. Um, and initially the company did so. But Facebook and WhatsApp, knowing uh, this history related to India, I think is probably engaged in the conversation now as well. Um, The government is seeking to squelch all speech that is in any way um, oppositional to their position. Closer to home, let's be praying for everyone affected by the shooting in Buffalo, Minnesota yesterday at the health clinic there. Um, Prayers for those directly and indirectly affected and prayers for the man who reached the point in his life where this seemed like the right thing to do. Um, Let's be uh, let's be very, very aware and sensitive that there's just a lot of people out there right on the verge um, and let's be people who who sow peace into the communities in which we live and um, come alongside those in uh, in greatest need. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.